Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, suddenly who, how, where, and when Americans vote is an issue being used to score political points. Are both sides pandering to their base by stoking fears about election integrity and voting rights? We'll take a closer look. Also this morning, Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baroudi salutes local professionals for their dedication at a most challenging time while looking forward beyond the pandemic for Public Health Week. And we'll tell you what's new in history for the month of April at the Hancock Historical Museum. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. If you need a reason to celebrate today, it is Drowsy Driver Awareness Day. And uh, indeed, that is one of the most dangerous and and least frequently talked about dangers on the road. We talk about drunk driving, we talk about distracted driving, but drowsy drivers are at least as dangerous, if not more so, than any of the above. Uh, so if you find yourself on the road nodding off or feeling like you're kind of zoning out, take a, take a break because that can be every bit as dangerous as drunk or distracted driving drowsy driver awareness day. It is army day, fresh tomato day, national caramel popcorn day, national hostess Twinkie day. Happy birthday to the hostess Twinkie invented on this date in 1930. Uh, it's hard to imagine life before the Twinkie. Uh, jump over things day. National, but just don't do it while you're drowsy. Um, <laughs> National Siamese Cat Day. Teflon Day. Teflon introduced by DuPont or created by researchers at the DuPont Company. The compound that was later marketed as Teflon invented on this date in 1938. So only slightly younger than the Twinkie. (laughs) Twinkies and Teflon. Where would we be without? It is also plan your epitaph day. In case you needed something cheery to uh, plan your epitaph day today. So um, this is uh, really... I, I'm thinking this is just a time bomb waiting to go off. The administration has uh, extended once again the freeze on federal student loan payments, this time through August 31st. Now, is this a done deal or is this are they just considering it? Uh, I'm a bit uh, unsure on this. The uh, reporting is a bit uh, ambiguous in the uh, piece that I'm seeing here on the uh, Newswire. Bloomberg first reported this yesterday. The payments had been set to resume on May 1st after being suspended since early in the pandemic. The freeze extended twice by the Trump administration, twice more during the Biden administration. Congressional Democrats on education committees have urged the president to extend the freeze through the end of this year, citing ongoing economic disruption. Um, And they are actually, of course, encouraging the president to go one step further and just uh, do a widespread student loan debt forgiveness deal. Um, some lawmakers have called for Mr. Biden to use executive action to cancel $50,000 for all student loan borrowers. 
Mr. Biden said during his campaign he supports canceling up to $10,000 in student debt, but believes it should be done via congressional action. But here's the thing. He doesn't have to, he may not be able to forgive or he may not want to forgive the student loan debt, but he can indefinitely suspend the requirement for you to repay the debt. So six one way, half a dozen the other. Tomato, tomato. But apparently the administration plans to extend the freeze on federal student loan payments through August 31st. So... But apparently no decision, okay, it says here no decision has uh, has yet been announced uh, on this. So it's not uh, formal, but it looks like this is going to happen again. And this is the thing, the longer this goes, uh, the harder it will be to start collecting those payments again. So you got to think the longer this goes on, the more likely it is they're just going to wipe out the debt. The big question is, is that even legal? Can they even legally just wave a wand and wipe out all of that student loan loan debt. I just wonder how much, uh, how much, how how many of those student loans go into default if all of a sudden after two or three years, they haven't been demanding payments and all of a sudden they do. That's going to be tough for a lot of people. Stay tuned on that. Some of the other uh, first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. You know, it used to be, that there were considered to be two daily peaks in worker productivity uh, just before lunch and just after lunch. However, as technology has advanced, particularly over the last couple of years of the pandemic, when people who were able to work from home did, Microsoft say they have detected a third daily productivity peak, and it is at night. Microsoft says some workers now have what are what they call a triple peak day. You've got a peak in worker productivity right before lunch, right after lunch, and the third peak nowhere near as strong as the first two uh, and only applies to about 30% of workers. But the third peak is most prominent between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m. Most prominent between 6 and 8 p.m., but actually continues through the night. While this information, it says here, suggests workers are being given more flexibility, which is a good thing. Uh, Derek Thompson has a more negative view in The Atlantic. He writes that managers need to do a better job of figuring out the balance between workers needing to be together at certain times for things like Zoom meetings, uh, balanced against being able to work independently. He says, quote, our late night mini workdays are not just an expression of benign flexibility, They are also the consequence of inflexible managers filling the day with so many meetings that we have to add a work night just to do our job. Interesting perspective, but about that, uh, we have, and doesn't this uh, also raise even more concerns about work-life balance? I mean, how many years have we talked about finding a work-life balance where we can turn everything off so we're not checking emails we're not responding to uh, phone calls from the boss at all hours we just turn that off we separate our work life and our personal life and here's more evidence that when we're working at home we're doing this uh, flex thing uh, this hybrid work uh, that it is is even more difficult to do that 
So anyway, just going to have a third productivity peak in the middle of the evening. Speaking of the uh, pandemic, do you feel nostalgia for the early days of the pandemic? Now that we are past the most dramatic alteration of our lives that we had at the be at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down and we were locked down and there's nowhere to go, no, nothing to do. Now we can, well, at least some people are looking at that as kind of the good old days. Uh, particularly members of Generation Z, those uh, Gen Zers between the ages of 10 and 25, have been very vocal on social media about missing the early days of the pandemic. They are expressing this nostalgia on uh, social media, places like TikTok with videos. Um, and uh, psychiatrist Dr. Itai, Itai Donovich says it might begin with feelings of shared experience amid tragedy, even though people's individual experiences varied during the early part of the pandemic. He says some of the sentiment may come from making meaning out of adversity and stories retold about what we've overcome you know the good old days when we all went together and we all get through this together they're getting nostalgic i guess for those uh, days and then there are part of those things that uh, you know we, we spent a lot of time without the harried rushed overscheduled day where we just focused on ourselves we could go for walks we could you know binge watch tv we could spend time with our families we could pay, play games we could uh, stay up late and sleep in and not have to worry about it and so you know the psychologists are saying there's a lot there to be nostalgic for and uh, it says there is something in the brain that has a tendency to not remember the hard part of these things and that is part and parcel to what nostalgia is but uh so if you look at the entirety of the early days of the pandemic, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, certainly. But there are certain things that people are starting to miss about life in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, so anyway, I just thought that was uh, really interesting and uh, something to think about, especially young people maybe uh, feeling a little bit nostalgic for this. I, and And there is no question that Decades from now, these same young people, ages 10 to 25, will tell their kids and more particularly their grandkids, I remember the great pandemic of 2020. You know, there's about it is uh, kind of like our grandparents talked about the Great Depression, World War Two, all of the sacrifices that they made for the greater good. Anyway, just something to uh, think about there. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, showers on and off today with a high around 60, becoming partly cloudy tonight, a low 42. Finley Mayor Christina Mern is inviting people to attend one of the Move Finley Forward workshops this week and share their ideas for the city's new strategic plan. It's really important for us to hear from the citizens. What are the, the hot button issues that they care about? What are the things that they want to see in their community in years to come? The mayor says the workshops are an opportunity to share your ideas and make Finley an even better place than it already is. The workshops will be held today and tomorrow. Get more on the website.
A ceremony to dedicate a new Ohio historical marker recognizing William Hoy was held in Hauktown. Hoy's noted for being the most accomplished deaf player in Major League Baseball history. Nearby Riverdale High School brought its baseball and softball teams. We asked Athletic Director Craig Taylor what he thinks the athletes will take away from the event. I think they'll take away that that someone grew up where they're growing up right now and made an impact on not only around here but on a national level as well. So I think they'll be very much impacted. Hoy was a center fielder and played for several professional baseball teams in the late 1800s, most notably the Cincinnati Reds. You can see video from the dedication of the historical marker on the website. A federal judge in Ohio is blocking the military from disciplining a dozen U.S. Air Force officers who are asking for religious exemptions to the mandatory COVID vaccine. The officers are mostly from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton. They, along with a handful of airmen and reservists, filed a lawsuit in February after their exemption requests were denied. A U.S. District Court judge in Cincinnati granted a preliminary injunction last week that will stay in place until the lawsuit is resolved. Last week, a federal judge in Texas barred the Navy from taking action against sailors objecting to being vaccinated on religious grounds. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The Finley Post to the Highway Patrol says it'll be targeting failure to yield violations during an April enforcement effort. The Highway Patrol says one of the main contributing factors in crashes in Hancock County is drivers running red lights and failing to stop at stop signs. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, as you know, one of the key talking points among Republicans in this midterm election season has been election integrity. And among Democrats, meanwhile, the buzzwords are voting rights. Something that many of us took for granted for decades has suddenly become a partisan battle that both parties are using to score political points. Ken Cuccinelli is a former uh, Virginia Attorney General who currently serves as National Chairman of the Election Transparency Initiative. And Ken, I'll be honest, I look at this as a fight in which neither side is completely in the right. It seems that the the big lie about a stolen election seems to be driving the narrative on the right, and fears of a return of Jim Crow is driving the narrative on the left, and neither is really true. Well, certainly um, the, the, the Jim Crow line, even the Washington Post has listed the pants on fire ratings for the Jim Crow descriptions of the election reforms in places like Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, for many of us, like at the Election Transparency Initiative, we're not fighting backwards. You know, we're not twisting and changing what happened in 2020. We're learning from it. And uh, COVID exposed some weaknesses mm-hmm. and um, certainly drew a lot of attention. Uh, but there are certainly were more problems in 2020 than any other election cycle I can remember. And I've actually well, paid attention to the election stuff for for several decades. Now. Sure, sure. Uh, but it, it, it begs the question that if the premise on both sides is inaccurate in its extreme, how big is the problem really? I don't accept that it's inaccurate on the right by any means. I think we're accurate. Well, you, you certainly know, can't. People. But just to, just to interject, and I want to clarify on this, you don't believe that the election was stolen, that Donald Trump actually won the election, and it was massive fraud that put Joe Biden in the White House. No, but I will say that Zuckerbucks were the difference, and it's the numbers show they were the difference. 
because the government is supposed to be a neutral arbiter, like the referee in the game. And here, one side bought the referee, and they did it arguably within the bounds of the law. So it was, uh, you could say it wasn't cheating, but it also uh, wasn't right. But when you're talking about uh, election financing and uh, dark money in politics, that is not new, nor is it exclusive to one side of the political aisle or the other. This has been well documented for years. No, you're mistaking election financing. What I'm talking about is an outside group funded largely by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife that literally bought and paid for through grants with strings attached government election offices. I mean, literally in Wisconsin, their own personnel came in, kicked out election officials and ran the election. They had the keys to the machines. That is not the same as um, campaign finance. We're literally talking about the referee being bought in 2020. That's what happened. So it sounds like, and and again, just to circle uh, back to all of this, and I know like you were saying, you don't want to look back and relitigate 2020, but it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. No, I'm learning from it. These people were very clever. They found a, I wouldn't call it so much a loophole, but our system didn't really account for people being able to come in, individuals with hundreds of millions of dollars, and not by advertising, but by government election offices. That's what Mark Zuckerberg did. But that was only one of the problems. So you are alleging fraud. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're putting words in my mouth. Well, wow, you are how a else? fine traditional journalist. No, 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 no. Wait I a mean, minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I do not have an agenda here. I'm trying to understand exactly what it is that you are alleging. What other word would you use other than fraud when you just said. So I'll use one example. I'll use one example and I'll be very specific about it. Madison, Wisconsin, the so-called a charitable organization, CTCL, that Mark Zuckerberg washed 350 of the $400 million through, gave grants to Madison, Wisconsin election office. Those grants were, were with the beneficent intent, allegedly, to help run the election. In fact, the strings attached to that grant allowed the 501c3, staffed by all leftists, <laughs> to come in and run the election. They literally installed their own personnel to run the election. And then they did a get-out-the-vote effort in Madison, which is overwhelmingly Democrat. That's why they went to Madison and altered the numbers in a way that can – it's not hard to show. It's already been shown – that the voter increase across the board happened in the presidential, but in the Zuckerberg areas, in the Zuckerbucks areas where that money went, they literally turned government officials out to do voter turnout, which is a classic exercise of campaigns, get out the vote efforts. And the government was doing it in densely Democrat areas. Tell me that isn't a partisan impact using the gover- the arm of government. So we're not talking about campaign finance here. This is literally buying government offices and turning them to your purposes. Now, in Ohio, what I think you would find is money was sort of sprinkled in the state 
because part of what they were doing was making it appear as if they were spreading money everywhere to help everyone, when in fact, when they went into the Democrat areas, it was much more intense. And so you'll remember one outcome of the election that people found odd at the time, that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump while Republicans gained about a dozen seats in the House of Representatives. That's a really odd thing to have happen both at the same time, statistically. And the Zuckerbucks, it took a while to figure out, but the Zuckerbucks actually explain it because they were spent in places where the Democrats already had safe congressional seats. So all of that spending didn't affect the congressional races in swing districts because they weren't targeting swing districts. They were targeting turnout in densely Democrat areas that already had Democrat congressmen. It was the single most impactful spending by one person in the history of United States elections. Let me uh, ask you, uh, this uh, is maybe kind of a sidebar question, but as it relates to Ohio and all of this, uh, obviously we've been following very closely the inability of the state of Ohio to redraw its legislative maps. Is all of this fueling the uh, inability to draw those legislative maps? To what extent does that play into this issue? Yeah, so it is, but more um, in terms of the environment. When you have an environment where election reform is already a hotter topic than at any other time in yours and my adult lifetime, that it happens at the same time as the decennial redistricting, just isn't very good timing. It's yeah. harder for people when they're fighting on a on a very similar topic to then set that aside on redistricting and say, well, let's work through this very reasonably. It just yeah. that's just not human nature. Yeah, no question about that. So, uh, circling back to uh, as, as you were saying, the uh, major problems that were exposed in the 2020 election. Then, what are you doing about it? Again, as we mentioned, you are national chairman of the Election Transparency Initiative. What is the goal? Well, the goal for us is that everyone, most particularly the losing side, can have confidence in the outcome of their elections. That's what we believe is the ultimate measure. And if you look at Bush v. Gore 20 plus years ago, Florida was embarrassed. They had an extraordinary level of incompetence. But what did Florida do about it? They made legislative changes. They fired people who weren't doing a good job. They cleaned up their election. So fast forward to 2020, a very challenging year by any standard in elections across the country. And Florida is the largest swing state. It's the third largest state. They were done counting smoothly on election night with no complaints from either side. We know we can clean up our elections. We're Americans. We can fix these problems. And we're working on it, whether it's photo ID or whether it's Zuckerbuck's bans or it's security for mail-in ballots while maintaining access to vote. We're big believers in making it easy to vote and hard to cheat. Unfortunately, what we see with the radical left, not all Democrats, but there's a cadre of them that really want to make it easy to cheat and hard to prove. We'll make that the last word again. Ken Cuccinelli is a former Virginia Attorney General, currently serves as National Chairman of the Election Transparency Initiative. And you have a website where folks can learn more uh, about all of your... We do, electiontransparency.org. Very good. I appreciate good. you asking. We will uh, make sure that we link that up on our webpage as well. Ken, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. You have a great week.
By the way, one uh, thing that uh, Mr. Cuccinelli said during our conversation just a moment ago that uh, needs, I think, clarification. I did not challenge him on this during during our conversation because I did not have the numbers in front of me. But I looked it up. And in fact, it is not uncommon for one party to win the White House and the other to pick up seats in one House of Congress or the other or both. Uh, This has happened several times. In recent history, it happened in 1990, uh, happened in 1976, happened in 1996, happened in the year 2000 uh, that uh, uh, George W. Bush won the White House, but uh, Democrats gained seats in uh, Congress. Even in 1984, when Ronald Reagan won a landslide reelection for president, Democrats picked up seats in Congress. And in 2016, when Donald Trump won the White House, Democrats uh, made gains Uh, in seats in both the Senate and the House. So the insinuation that Joe Biden winning the White House while Republicans made gains in Congress is somehow evidence of some sort of nefarious goings on in the election, uh, that it is some sort of statistical anomaly, as Mr. Cuccinelli implied, is just simply not supported by the historical facts. So just wanted to uh, clarify that. So this is Public Health Week, and Hancock Public Health Commissioner Kareem Baroudi is with us in the studio this morning. This week, uh, you took some time out to specifically uh, give a shout-out and a, and a big salute to uh, all of the local uh, professionals who uh, did yeoman's work. Uh, some incredible dedication and very hard work, obviously, over the past couple of years uh, during this most challenging time. So... Uh, you you really just can't say enough about you know the the work that uh, that these folks did under most uh, the most incredible of circumstances. Sure. Well, good morning, Chris, and uh, thank you for having me in recognition of Public Health Week this uh, today. Um, I think uh, uh, we've got a lot of support from the community as well, recognizing um, the efforts that um, that health professionals done throughout this pandemic. We couldn't have done it without the support of, of the citizens of Hancock County and Findlay. We're going to have done it with the support of all the collaborative, um, the officials, the, the nonprofits. Um, it, it was an amazing coming together to kind of respond to this pandemic. And it was a tough two years. Like yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny. I was thinking about this and uh, all of us kind of uh, sat back during the course of the past couple of years and say, man, we would have never imagined that we would ever have to deal with something like this. I can only imagine that uh, same feeling among healthcare workers. I mean, you know, you, who would have uh, thought that you would have ever gone? You got it right. It's yeah. once a lifetime event here. And I think um, we, you know, as a community, we did great um, as a public health workforce, um, healthcare workforce. Uh, we came together really and, and, and um, stepped up, um, you know, to the plate to, to help and, and respond to this pandemic. Um Again, uh, now we've been in response for so long. Now it's recovery time. Yeah, um, I think it's uh, it's needed to uh, go back and examine what happened the last couple of years. How was the response, and kind of learn lessons from that pandemic. What is what does that process look like uh, now? Uh, and it only makes sense. Um, and I think we talked about this almost from the from the very beginning that the time would come to sort of uh, do a uh, a sort of recap or or you know look back and and uh, 
sort of do a post uh, postmortem on the pandemic and the response, what was done well, what wasn't, what can we do better, that yeah. kind of thing. In emergency preparedness, we call this a hot wash. So um, we come together, again, with all the collaboratives, all the players, all the stakeholders that we worked with and collaborated with the last two years and come back and say what well, we've done right here, what well, well, we need to improve on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always room for improvement. There's always, you know, um, things that we could, we could have done better. Uh, now it's a self-reflection, uh, knowing what we know now, what we didn't know back in the in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot we learned from that from that pandemic, and I think it will be uh, it will be uh, not only in the history book, but it will go into the playbook for the in preparing for the next one. You know, one of the other points that you make, and and the pandemic certainly emphasized this, is that uh, public health uh, involves encompasses uh, so many people within the community, not just the healthcare workers. Uh, themselves, not just the Hancock Public Health Office, but really everyone within the community, a lot of public leaders and so on, have a part to play in this. Yeah, with with a small staff of, of 30 individuals really dedicated to to serving this community, um, we touch so many lives every, every, every day, you know, from restaurants inspections to uh, watching, you know, um, for communicable disease, um, going into schools, our nurses go into schools, our immunization clinics, um, our injury prevention team, um, even we have a plumbing inspector here on our staff that, that watches the, the public waters. Um, so if you really, you know, stop and think about it, um, every and, and everything we do every day from the day we wake up until we go to bed at night, our public health is, is involved somehow. And when there is an issue that needs to be addressed in the greater community, it involves not just, again, the, the staff at Hancock Public Health, but the, the schools, the mayor, the county commissioners, the, you know, business leaders, everyone, you know, has a part in this. Absolutely. And that's key. And I think that's that's the key to uh, we were kind of successful in responding to this pandemic because we all came together. Uh, we had collaboration with the school superintendent, school boards, um, the hospital. We were working really close with the hospital system, with primary providers, with the mayor, elected officials, the commissioners, um, you know, uh, emergency preparedness. We all came together and yeah. we'd like to build on that moving forward. It, it really is interesting because if you compare that, sometimes it seems it seemed, I, I don't know, but it, it seemed like even at the uh, state and national level, that didn't always happen. So the fact that it was you were able to bring together that coalition here locally so that everybody was on the same page uh, is quite a and, and that, that's exactly my message. When I when I came to serve here uh, in Findlay and Hancock six years ago, um, I always heard about the Hancock and Findlay formula, how they all come together when, when needed. Mm-hmm. But really, I experienced it through the, the last couple yeah. of years. And it was great. I'm really grateful for that. So it, you were just kind of touching on this. Where do we go now? I mean, moving uh, beyond the pandemic, um, obviously, Hancock Public Health doesn't go away. You've got all kinds of, of things that you do on a regular basis. And you were doing during the pandemic as well. But where what is the what is the focus now? Where do you move uh, from here? As we recover from the pandemic, our focus is going to be supporting our mental health um, services here as much as we can. Uh, we're going to go back to our business of prevention. Uh, we don't want to be responding. We want to prevent things from happening in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go back to immunization. We're going to go back to um, to school screenings. We're going to go back to restaurants inspections. Uh, public health. We're always we should be a step before things happen. 
Um, and um, again, we identify our business being in the business of prevention and promotion of um, of good health. So we're we're gonna go back to our uh, work of uh, tackling social determinants, what preventing people from achieving good health, um, so we can be the healthiest county in uh, in Ohio. Did some <coughs> excuse me? Did some of that uh, sort of uh, take a back burner during the the past couple of years over the course it sure of the pandemic? Did. Sure did, because of many reasons, mm-hmm. and um, we don't want to keep blaming COVID. COVID hopefully is gone, mm-hmm. um, and again, it's going to go into the history books. But um, but it did it did f- to some to some extent. Um, I think now it's the time to so go catching back up to do. Focus, catching yeah. up to do. Uh, and uh, focusing on, when you talk about uh, prevention, one of the things that we talked about during the course of the pandemic was the uh, number of uh, regular health screenings and, and checkups and, and uh, regular immunizations <laughs> for kids and, and so on that sort of became less emphasized. Uh, a lot of that is going to, I would imagine, be part of that catch-up plan. Absolutely. We're going to go back. We have we have a health improvement plan for the community that we work with our partners on, too. Uh, we're going to go back to kind of tackling the um, diabetes, obesity, um, you know, chronic disease, all those priorities. Um, and by the way, we did survey the population back in the fall, you know, um, despite of, of the COVID surge we were having back then. We did survey the population by mail. Uh, and we got good feedback. The report is not ready yet, but that should give us kind of an insight of what people are, uh, the status of the health of the community. So we look forward to uh, moving forward beyond the pandemic with the uh, folks at Hancock Public Health. Commissioner Kareem Baruti with us at this morning for Public Health Week. Again, a big shout out to all of the folks who worked uh their tails off during the course of the past couple of years. Uh, what a uh, crazy trip it has been. Kareem Baruti, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Chris. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Dateline, North Wales, Pennsylvania. Anthony Dugan, age 38, is uh, facing multiple charges after he was caught on surveillance video breaking into the American Star Diner, where he stole an entire cheesecake and half of a prime rib roast. (laughs) Happened around 4.30 in the morning uh, last Thursday. Then just after 6 a.m., after he had uh, swiped the cheesecake and half a prime rib roast, about 6 a.m., he was caught on surveillance video outside of Adult World local establishment, striking a message billboard with a bat, causing it to break, and then striking the windows of the businesses uh, of the business before repeatedly striking the glass front door until it shattered. Um, he was uh, taken into custody the next morning and has been charged with two counts of felony burglary, one count of felony criminal mischief, and uh, several misdemeanor counts of criminal mischief and theft. <laughs> Wonder what kind of party he was planning. I... <laughs> Um, himself a cheesecake, half a rib roast, and some adult toys, and he's all set. (laughs) Police had other plans. Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, a woman who worked, worked, past tense, for the New York City Law Department is now searching for a new job after she posed as a reporter during a City Hall press conference. (laughs) Daniela Jample or Yempel, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, who has been a vocal critic of the city's mask rules for school children, uh, was able to question the mayor about his plans to end the mandate. Uh, 
the uh, mayor of New York City, Mayor Adams, was set to lift the mask mandate on Monday for uh, preschoolers, but changed his mind when he saw a rise in COVID cases across the city. Um, so the this person in the law department posed as a reporter to grill the mayor about this. Uh, once they realized that she was not a reporter and she was actually on the city payroll, um, <clears throat> Well, that was the final straw. The uh, law department says her termination was in the works before Monday's incident. Ms. Jempel says her uh, fi- her termination was a wrongful firing, and she plans to hire a lawyer of her own to fight it. So this is not the end of the, <laughs> end of the story. All right. <clears throat> it's kind of weird. Out of uh, West Virginia University said they were counting sheep last month, and they learned that dozens of them were gone. The university says 93 of their sheep, along with the sheep's guardian donkey (laughs) named Broccoli, escaped from the school's organic research farm back in (laughs) mid-March. School officials told the uh, school's independent student newspaper that the animals were luckily spotted shortly after they were discovered missing and returned to their pastures within an hour. The uh, gate that was broken during the animal's escape was also repaired and a new lock was put on the (laughs) account sheep and find out that some are missing, along with the guardian donkey. (laughs) All right. Uh, This from uh, the international file in England, the Cambridge University Library says two notebooks belonging to Charles Darwin that have been missing for more than two decades have now been returned. The university said the two notebooks were left outside of the librarian's office wrapped in plastic inside a bright pink gift bag with a note that said, Librarian, Happy Easter, signed X. One of the notebooks contains Darwin's famous Tree of Life sketch that maps out his theory of natural selection. Notebooks went missing back in September of 2000 after they were removed from the library's special collection storage rooms to be photographed. The uh, school issued a plea for their return. uh, Several pleas, in fact, the latest one in 2020. Cambridgeshire police say they will continue to investigate who took the books. We'll have to see how that case evolves. (laughs) Get it? Evolves? Darwin? (laughs) I slay me sometimes. <clears throat> I know I did that whole story for so I could tell that joke. <laughs> A little anticlimactic there on that one. <clears throat> and finally, in the uh, broken news <laughs> this morning, a grandmother in Pennsylvania is accused of threatening a police officer in Hollidaysburg with what she called white witchery if he didn't drop her grandson's felony drug charge. <laughs> Celestia Barker, age 74, is accused of calling the Hollidaysburg police back on March 27th to ask an officer to drop the felony charge against her grandson, saying he only had a small amount of marijuana and uh, and a crack pipe. It's just a small amount. She allegedly told the officer that she practices witchcraft and that he would be in jeopardy if he failed to drop the charges. She then gave the officer examples of things that could happen to him, such as falling down the stairs and feeling like someone had pushed him. She also said she wasn't threatening anyone, (laughs) 
but just making statements. The officer hung up, but then she called back numerous times. When state police questioned her, she admitted that she did it and explained to the trooper that she practices white witchery and that they best be looking over their shoulder. (laughs) So now, not only is her grandson facing felony charges, she is facing a felony charge of threatening unlawful harm to a public servant (laughs) and interfering with the judicial process. So she's in all kinds of trouble herself. I guess they're not afraid of that white witchery. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. And this update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Your home for Cleveland Guardians baseball is WFIN. The 2-2. Swung in and blasted deep to left center field near the wall and gone. Jose Ramirez with home run number 27. The Guardians open the season Thursday afternoon at Kansas City. Pre-game at 335 on 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now our daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. This is really interesting. A new poll of uh, 2,000 adults uh, finds that a growing number of Americans, if given the choice, would rather walk than drive someplace or, or take public transportation or some, you know ride the bus, take a cab or an Uber or whatever, um, as long as it's within reasonable walking distance wherever you're going. Uh, this poll finds 54% would choose walking as their preferred mode of transportation whenever possible. In fact, three in five, about 60%, are willing to walk a mile before seeking out other methods of transportation. So if where you're going is uh, a mile or less away, just walk rather than drive or, again, in places where it's uh, available, taking public transportation. About half of those in the poll, 46%, use a step counter to track their walking progress. This is really what it boils down to as we're looking for uh, healthier habits, healthier lifestyle. 46% use a step counter to track their progress. Respondents in the poll said taking an average of 5,900 steps a day is average. 5,900 steps a day is what we're getting in on average, but many... Uh, hope to double that amount this year. Uh, on average, Americans want to add another four, uh, 5,430 steps to their daily tally. So how's your exercise, your walking regimen coming along? Kind of interesting there. And and how how far would you walk to run an errand to go someplace before you think, ah, I'll just drive? I have a feeling for many of us it's, Probably less than a mile, but something to think about. By the way, speaking of baseball, Sarah Sisser is uh, here at the Hancock Historical Museum. You were uh, on hand for the uh, unveiling of the uh, historical marker uh, for... uh, For William Hoyt, yeah, yesterday. Yesterday in Hogtown, which was just a really neat thing. It's a great local story. Yeah. It was nice to um, take a moment, take pause to really remember him mm-hmm. and that story. And we were fortunate to have Governor Mike DeWine Governor in attendance. Was there and He's everything a else. big fan of baseball, a big fan of the Cincinnati Reds, for whom um, Hoy played for. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was actually, he told us he was actually at the game as a young boy 
the um, William Hoy threw out the pitch, the really? opening pitch at the World Series um, in Cincinnati in, in I think 1961. Wow, he was there. that's uh, that's really cool. And to have the uh, governor in Houghtown. Yes, all it was that's pretty it. special. I told him I think he was probably the first sitting the first governor to make a visit there. So <laughs> maybe the last. I too. would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine uh, so. But you know, that's one of the the things that uh, you know. Uh, William Hoy lived uh, in Finley, you know, throughout his uh, later life. I didn't, I never knew that story until he passed away. Yeah. And um, I, I just, it, and it really kind of struck me. I never got the chance to really speak to him because from what I understand, he could tell some just incredible stories. Um, I'm sure that's true. You know, he lived uh, to be 99 years old. Mm. So I think he probably had um, quite a life and saw a lot of changes and, um, just what he was able to overcome uh, as as a person, as an athlete. Yeah. Um, he was uh, deaf. He was unable to speak. And so, and from the age of two. Yeah. And um, so, you know, he's mostly credited with the reason why we use hand signals still today mm-hmm. in the game of baseball. And mm-hmm. so um, just a, a really remarkable local story. And, uh, and he's not the only, uh, you know, person that has gotten some measure of fame that we have among our community. And That's true. Yes. To, to, I guess the point being, get to know these people. I mean, yeah, while you have the chance, while they are still around, talk absolutely. to these people, get their stories, because that's just um, that's just amazing history. Right, and it's what I probably enjoy most about my job is mm-hmm. that I get to spend most of my days um, documenting those stories, listening yeah. to people's stories, and you're absolutely right. Um, we're fortunate to have many of those kind of living legends among us every day. So exactly. uh, make sure you take the time to listen. So uh, you've got stuff uh, coming up the uh, month of April at the Hancock Historical Museum. We say what's what's new in history, uh, <laughs> as it were. Uh, brown Bag Lunch is tomorrow. That's right. Always the first Thursday of the month. And tomorrow we have with us Fred Steiner. Um, many of you will probably know Fred from his um, time with the Bluffton Publications, um, Bluffton News, Bluffton Icon. Um, and you know he was a journalist, journalism background. Um, now in his retirement, um, he's really a student of Bluffton history, and so he's going to be talking about um, some of the railroad lines that historically and still do go through Bluffton, especially the interurban line that used to go through Main Street, right through the heart of Bluffton, and also mm. went through Finley and connected many of our regional cities. Um, and when I hear stories about that or see photos of it, Boy, do I wish we still had something like that. You know, yeah. that you could hop on a train and take it from Toledo to, to Finley. And um, what a day that would make, you know, if you were going up to Toledo to go sure. shopping or something. So yeah. um, we'll get to hear a little bit more about that. We look forward to having him. It is It will start at noon. Um, we do fill up quickly for those. So we advise people to come a little bit early. We're not requiring reservations, but would encourage them. If you want to give us a call, let, let us know you're coming I'm at the museum, 419-423-4433. It's free if you're a member of the museum and just $3 if you're not. Okay, so uh, bring a uh, bring a brown bag lunch, which is where it gets his name. <laughs> That's and, exactly uh, right. Enjoy a little history over the lunch hour. That is tomorrow. Uh, then later in the month, another uh, classic movie night. That's right. On April 22nd, we typically do these um, the third or fourth uh, Friday of the month, and it starts at seven o'clock. It is free and open to the public. And this month is really a favorite of a lot of folks, a more modern classic, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So we're really <laughs> looking forward to this one. Um, what's fun about these movie nights is that not only do we screen the film, but we have um, a great uh, contextual conversation beforehand. So you learn a little bit about the history surrounding the film, a history about the directors, actors, um, 
And I always find that super enlightening. And then afterwards, if you want to stick around, we have a guided conversation um, discussion about the film. So we have a lot of regulars that really enjoy uh, coming out. And we have refreshments, again, free and open to the public at 7 o'clock. I would imagine that not many people have thought about the historical context of Monty Python. Yes, I think you're probably (laughs) right. That should be a really uh, interesting conversation because like everything else, there is, I'm sure, a lot of historical context to be drawn from that yes and oftentimes these films we don't think about it but they're groundbreaking in several different ways oh, yeah. um, and you know there are multiple different genres of comedy and um, obviously there's a real art to that and so we do kind of dive into some of those things and again I always walk away with a lot of knowledge and some fun facts about each one of these films so and maybe a new appreciation uh, maybe on a different level for some of these films that we've Absolutely. seen a thousand times and not even really thought about yeah so. I think that's true yeah. so it's, it's always a fun time, and um, we look forward to inviting folks for that. Again, uh, don't need a reservation, but we encourage them. So give us a call if you think you might like to come on Friday the 22nd. All right, so circle that on the calendar. And then one other event that you've got uh, in the month of April that'll be an awful lot of fun for the kids, for kids and families, little hands-on history. That's right. This will be the first of a handful of um, Sundays that we do this year that we're calling Hands-On History, and it'll be the 24th, uh, the last Sunday of the month. And this will just be a dollar admission for anybody that wants to come, really um, specifically for families, for young kids. We'll have several other collaborating nonprofits in the area that come, and we'll have a lot of activities, crafts. Our theme for that day is really um, the Earth Sciences and Mother Nature in honor of Earth Day. And, of course, our education coordinator, Deb Wickerham, many folks in town will know Deb. Um, not only from her her time with Flag City Honor Flight, but also as a teacher of mm-hmm. science. Uh, many of us had her as a teacher with Finley City Schools over the years. <laughs> and so her her real love is science education. And so she's really having a lot of fun planning this. And um, it'll be a great time. Again, just a dollar admission. And so if you haven't been out to the museum in a while, new exhibits to see and then a bunch of fun activities for the day. Uh, often been said that the way to truly especially for young people get them to appreciate something is where they can get in and actually touch and feel and do something that hands on uh, that is a really great program and that is what date again that uh, is going to be a sunday april 24th okay, from so. one to four those are our typical hours on a sunday again just one dollar admission for that day and uh, lots of fun to have. look forward to uh, that program and Uh, more of those uh, throughout the year. Again, uh, Sarah Sisser, the Hancock Historical Museum with us. All of the uh, information on this and everything else you could possibly need to know about the museum on your website. That's right, right. HancockHistoricalMuseum.org. We've got the link up at GoodMornings.net as well. Sarah, thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program. And remember, once again, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, it's time to go bowling for kids and more. Talk to the folks at the Children's Mentoring Connection. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.